Hey everybody, Rob and Michelle coming to you live from uh, Del Mar. It's actually Saturday evening and we're gonna miss you tomorrow at church. Uh, we're filling in for Jurgen Matesius at Awaken Church. Yep. And uh, Pastor Rick's gonna be preaching for you. Yay. He's gonna light it up. Woo, 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 woo. Uh, Pastor Rick is going to be doing your communion service and he's just a treasure as you guys know and I'm so grateful for the ability to come and bless Pastor Gergen who's been under the gun. Uh, the newspaper here in San Diego has been beating up on him because they've been wide open and uh, the health department's been messing with him. It's total targeting. Uh, but great guy. He's fearless. Uh, the congregation, about, I don't know, 10,000 people. They've got seven campuses. I'll be at three of them so it's going to be a busy day tomorrow. Well, busy day today because you're seeing this Sunday and even though I'm recording on Saturday. So, right. Yeah, yeah, there we go. That's awesome how you did that. <laughs> yeah, thanks. All right. Miss you guys. Love you. God bless you. And thank you, Pastor Rick. We'll see you guys all next Sunday. Love you. Bye. Good afternoon, Godspeak. Great to be with you on this Sunday as exciting things are happening everywhere. You see the peaceful protests. We have to emphasize that here because you guys only need a nudge to go totally nuclear. So, <laughs> peaceful protest, right? <laughs> Last Sunday, Pastor Rob preached his heart out so that he lost his voice on Monday. He had no voice on Monday. So Monday, Tuesday, I gave him a break on the fireside chat to fill in, do some interviews, let him recuperate. Good thing, because on Wednesday, he had, his schedule blew up with great opportunities as the Lord is bringing lots of those things along as we're in this battle for real liberty in our nation and for the cause of the gospel. And one of the questions that I got texted in late on the live uh, chat, um, it missed the, the window for us. We had signed off when we got it, but I thought I'd take the opportunity here this afternoon to really answer this question, and this is the question that was put to me. Pastor Rick, what inspired you to join Pastor Rob and our church in this fight for liberty? You had a comfortable ministry, certainly not surrounded by such challenges, and yet you signed on for this intensity. We are grateful you did, but would love the viewers to know what inspired you and your wife to take such a step of faith. Well, um, just so that you know, walking back a little bit and giving you some background, how did we end up here? My wife and I came eight weeks ago with a suitcase in hand. That's all we had because we were in Idaho at the time when Rob sent out his uh, 911 text to have some help. And um, because we were spending time with my mom who has stage four liver cancer. And uh, appreciate your prayers for her. She's going through treatment and those things and we're... Um, talking on a regular basis. But we came because we saw the incredible need of what was going on here. But this conversation and this journey with Rob really started a decade ago. Check out this picture, a little walk down memory lane. This is 10 years ago. And uh, we have a little bit more collagen in our face 10 years ago. But uh, Pastor Craig was in Uganda for 14 years, him and Lauren, and they have a wonderful ministry that's still going on over there now. And we went there to help them with a pastor's conference. Pastor Don McClure, who's uh, second from the right here, uh, Pastor Rob, myself, and Craig all grew up under his ministry. 
And Rob and I were here, and we're on the, see the guy in the back with his hand up? That's my, my nephew. He's our worship leader, and he was photobombing. He totally just, afterwards, I said, Bus, you, you, you photobombed. He said, yeah, I thought this would be an epic picture one day. So this is his epic moment, I guess, for photobombing. Anyway, we were on the back porch, and at this gathering specifically, I still remember the conversation, Rob began to take me to task for not being a more political voice as a pastor. Now, this is a decade ago, and I kind of rolled my eyes because, you know, in our Calvary movement, most of us grew up, and I was a Cal- I've been a Calvary pastor for 30 years, um, we preach the gospel in, in the pulpit, share the gospel, teach the word, and then we just basically left politics alone. And, but I really see now that, you know, our influence was minimized because there was nobody really like Rob that has had this passion as a citizen growing up in a family that was active in American politics and then got saved when he was in college. And he just has this passion. So he uh, started talking to me about some things that I rolled my eyes. And you have to realize my point of context. I'm an Idaho kid. Everybody's got a pickup, a gun rack, and if you come to town wanting trouble, you're going to find it where we're from, right? So the, the socialism or the progressive politics of California are not felt where I'm from. Uh, it's a red state, I think, even now with the election. President Trump, though, that's tilted a lot. Uh, President Trump's uh, numbers were 63% or 64% in America, and I mean, uh, in, in the state of Idaho, and uh, that's diluted because all these people are moving from California to Boise, Idaho. So uh, that's what's happening, and that's why the numbers are starting to shift. So when you talk to me about politics at that time, I'm like, I don't need, my whole community is conservative. Our, our whole system in the local politic where I was was conservative. So for me, I never saw the need And even until I handed off my church three years ago, and then when I came here, I was here in January for three weeks, and we were staying with Craig and Lauren, we wanted to come visit them, and then I wanted to interview my two uncles, because I'm writing a biography about my life, and they're over in LA. And so we hung out for three weeks, and it wasn't until I came here that I realized, oh, this is what it's like to live under socialism in the state of California. And that's before the lockdowns. Realizing the political climate and culture on arguably the most beautiful state in the union. There's no, there's no state that has all the diversity of California. It's incredible. And yet to see its um, leadership be so incredibly bent in a progressive liberal direction was somewhat, it's almost like, you know, everybody's talking about your woke moment. For me, it was like, Oh, I, I woke up because this Idaho kid basically got slapped in the face with uh, your neighborhood government, and just by observation. And so when, after that visit, I would tell my friends when they were talking to me about things, I said, you know, you want to know what socialism looks like, go to California. Because if we don't do something now as citizens, this is what's coming to all of America. Because everything starts on the West Coast with you guys, Right. And then it sweeps across the country. So uh, Rob called me to task. I rolled my eyes. And because I'm, you know, a redneck from Idaho. And I said, whatever, Rob, you know, I know you're political. And he goes, you're just going to stick your head in the sand like all the other pastors. This was, he was telling me 10 years ago. He's so subtle, isn't he? He just, (laughs) 
like straight in your face, like, and I just, I said, you know what, let's just have fun on this mission trip. Let's hang out with some little kids. Him and I are hanging out with these two twin girls. They're just adorable. They're twins. They're wearing his sunglasses. And, and uh, I'm trying to lighten it up and have a little fun, but he's not hearing it. He's, he's back at it. He's, you know, <laughs> you know. <laughs> so now fast forward a decade and I come and do some leadership consulting for the church with a new ministry that I have, Kingdom X. And because the election year was blown up and he was traveling with Car- Charlie Kirk, he really needed help here as well. And he asked me to come and help. And, but then uh, after we agreed for me to come and help, come and help the, next few, uh, the next week or two before we could even pull the trigger on that, everything locked down. Everything shut down. And uh, then after five months or so, he texted me and said, let's, let's do this again. So that's how we ended up here. But really, I want you to know that uh, your pastor, Rob McCoy, is really uh, the tip of the spear for the citizenship we have in heaven with Jesus. We're dual citizens, you guys. We have a citizenship in heaven with Jesus. Our names are written in the Lamb's Book of Life. And we have an American citizenship that we need to flex our muscles and actually use uh, in a peaceful way that the Constitution gives us the right to. And all of that, as it, as it unfolds, is so important for us to realize um, what's been going on in our nation. We had some good news, you guys, this week. And I mean the Wednesday night before Thanksgiving and then this week. And I don't know if you saw the Supreme Court case that, uh, listen to this ruling, check it out. Washington, the Supreme Court ordered California judges Thursday to follow its lead in blocking stringent coronavirus restrictions on houses of worship as the high court did in New York in a New York case last week. The justices unsigned order sending a California church's challenge back to lower courts likely will stop Governor Gavin Newsom from prohibiting most indoor religious services. But Justice Gorsuch wrote this, and it's so good. Even in a pandemic, the Constitution cannot be put away and forgotten. The court's unsigned majority opinion said the restrictions at issue here, by effectively barring many from attending religious services, strike at the very heart of the First Amendment's guarantee of religious liberty. Woo! Amen. So this decision was declared to Governor Newsom's tyrannical rules against synagogues and churches in New York, and everything squishes uh, basically middle America from the East Coast and the West Coast because of the liberalism on both coasts, and then squishes towards the middle to Idaho kids like me. And so that's why all the taillights are going to Idaho, right? People are moving, they're going to Idaho, they're going to Texas, they're going to Tennessee, they're going to Florida. Because people are wanting to get away. For the first time in California's history, more people are moving out of the state than are moving in. And what is going to happen with all the people that are moving? Many people are going to Austin, Texas, which is one of the most liberal areas of Texas. And they're just going to join the problem there. Let me tell you, if Texas ever falls and becomes a blue state, America's toast. Right? I mean, because they're in the Bible Belt. So... 
when you look at this incredible Supreme Court case, praise the Lord for Amy Comey Barrett. Because now there's a majority that uh, John Ro- Justice Roberts, who we thought when President Bush put him on, he was an original constitutional justice, uh, apparently is not, right? So all of this is good news that we get to celebrate. But the beautiful thing about leadership, when you're the, you, leaders see things in advance. Your pastor was at this place back on uh, on Holy Week, right? Handing out, even though it was under masks and different things, to say you're not going to take away Easter, you're not going to take away, they tried to take away Thanksgiving, not going to take away Christmas. So the beauty of the good news is it makes us dust off those old documents and really review things. Now, if you need a Bible in a little bit, we're going to be reading the scriptures and we're going to stand to do so. And we're, our message is going to come from Judges chapter 4 and 5. So if you need a Bible, raise your hand and they'll get one of those to you. Also, if you did not get a communion cup on your chair, also raise your hand and they'll take care of that. But the beautiful thing about being challenged in this way is just reviewing our First Amendment rights. Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. This is our heritage that our forefathers gave us. Listen to George Washington's words that he challenged the American people that we are the greatest experiment in liberty in human history the American people. He said, the preservation of the sacred fire of liberty and the destiny of Republican model of government are justly considered as deeply, perhaps as finally staked on the experiment entrusted to the hands of the American people. We have this incredible experiment, and right now it's slipping through our fingers. We are losing the liberty that our forefathers have given given to us. Thomas Jefferson said this, He said, a wise and frugal government which shall restrain men from injuring one another, which shall leave them otherwise free to regulate their own pursuits of industry and improvement, shall not take from the mouth of labor the bread it has earned. That's what's happening with the lockdowns. They're taking bread literally out of the mouth of those who own businesses. This is a sum of good government when it doesn't do that. And this is necessary to close the circle of our felicities. Thomas Jefferson. James Madison said this, so apropos. Isn't it amazing these guys are so ahead of us and what they saw was going to happen? James Madison said this, I believe there are more instances of the abridgment of freedom of the people by gradual and silent encroachments by those in power than by violent and sudden usurpations. What he's saying is that slowly our it erodes our liberty, right? And we don't even know what's happening. It's like the proverbial frog that's in the slowly uh, heating up. And it's like a boa constrictor. They fall on their prey, they wrap themselves around it, and then every time their prey exhales, the, they cinch it up until now you have no ability to breathe. And that's the way, and and it's happening, you guys, for the last 50 years in America. Well, all of us good people are taking our kids to soccer and having barbecues on Friday and just enjoying the American dream, right? Do you know that it only takes three and a half to six percent of people in in any given cause to change the future while you and I are having 
backyard barbecues and taking care of our kids at soccer games. The progressives have been eaten away at our liberty and coming after it. Six years ago, in 2014, I was in Greece. I was on a tour. I was talking to the, our tour guide, who is brilliant with, with history. He said, the socialists have just gotten in charge of our government. This is back in 2014. He said, we know what's coming. Their government finally fell to socialism. I don't know if you saw the, the uh, article last month, four weeks ago. They said, in the lockdown with the uptick of COVID, in Greece, if you want to leave your house, you have to text the police to ask for permission to go out your front door. That's what's coming to America. Unless, unless, right, the American people stand up for liberty. And so this is... And this is the exhortation that you guys have been hearing for a long time. John Adams sums it up this way. John Adams says, A constitution of government, once changed from freedom, can never be restored. Liberty once lost is lost forever. Because it's like sharks with blood in the water. Once once government authorities discover the power to lock you down, to shut you down, They love that sense of power. So many people get into politics, not for the money, though they end up becoming millionaires, but for the power, the power over the people. And that's what's going on. That's what we see. Now, the title of our message is The Leader's Finest Hour is When They Answer the Cry for Help. Have you ever heard the cry of somebody say help and you just dropped everything to run and to help? And that's what's going on as we see the citizens rising up. The county of San Mateo here in California rose up and said they're not going to implement Governor Newsom's lockdown. The Sheriff's Department in L.A. County said they're not going to cite people that are breaking the curfew. And let me set up this clip because if this doesn't push you to the place of just really wanting to help with uh, exercising the liberty that we have to, to pray, to vote, to peacefully protest. Like I said, you guys only need a nudge to go nuclear. We're talking peaceful. We're not, ter- you know, we're, we're a peace-loving people. But here's a restaurant owner. You probably saw the clip. A restaurant owner in L.A. because Governor Garcia locked down indoor and outdoor dining, right? But then he gave permission to a movie company to set up all of their food service for the movie that they were filming right next to this gal. She's got to shut down, but the film crew has special privilege, and she's losing her business. Check it out. I'm losing everything. Everything I own is being taken away from me, and they set up a movie company right next to my outdoor patio, which is right over here. And people wonder why I'm protesting and why I have had enough. (laughs) They have not given us money and they have shut us down. We cannot survive. My staff cannot survive. Look at this. Tell me that this is dangerous, but right next to me as a slap in my face, That's safe. This is safe. 
50 feet away. This is dangerous. Mayor Garcetti and Gavin Newsom is responsible for every single person that doesn't have unemployment, that does not have a job, and all the businesses that are going under. And we need your help. We need somebody to do something about this. Whoa. So you see, just, I mean, we rejoice that we had the Supreme Court case in New York and California that gave us, as the people of the Lord, liberty. Amen? But citizens that are just the, the pursuit of life, liberty, right? And the pursuit of happiness as being robbed from the American people. And it's not that we understand that there's an uptick in the COVID cases, right? Well, first of all, they've never measured a yearly flu with tests in our whole life, right? It's all about the cases. No, it should be just about people that go to the hospital or intensive care or they pass away. We are not ignorant of the science. 99% of Americans are fine. Governor DeSantis, there's some real heroes. You know, the governor of Florida, responsible for 22 million people. They were doing the lockdowns, uh, a whole list of all the, by state. He said, we will not lock down Florida. Now, this was a week ago. He could have flip-flopped, I'm not sure. But a week ago, he said, we will not lock down our state for a virus that is 98.2 or 98.8 recoverable, right? So you, cut, you shut down the whole nation, and yet my brother right now and my sister-in-law, they have COVID in Idaho. He lost his sense of taste and his sense of smell, and he's like, it's like a bad flu. In August, I went through, my dad had COVID, and I hung out with him in quarantine for three weeks. It was like my dad had a bad flu. Right? A guy that bought my house, a wonderful brother in the Lord that had a lot of underlying health problems, bought my house for me when I left Idaho Falls three years ago, and this week he succumbed to COVID and he passed away. But he had layers of comorbidities. He had issues, and he was in his late 70s. This is the category. So it's not that we're ignorant of the science. Maybe you checked out this story in the New England Journal, Journal of Medicine, that Mount Sinai in Manhattan, their medical center, and the Naval Medical Center did a test from the summertime with 1,848 Marines in the most controlled circumstances that has been done. And these young, healthy Marines went through it, and they had, the six, they had all, all of the social, uh, social protocols and they could not stop the spread of virus between them with all of the social protocols, and yet not with, there was no damage to any of the young people because most of them were asymptomatic, right? They didn't even know because they're young and healthy. Even Dr. Fauci this week finally said, send the kids back to school. He had the same data six months ago and has kept things locked down. So unless somebody finally says, what's all the baloney? right? Enough is enough. So in this process, we want to know, as the people of faith, you guys, has nations went through things like this? Do we see stories in the Bible that could be any inspiration to us? The book of Judges is fascinating because it's a cycle of a nation that they love God, God blesses them, and everything, life's great, right? It's the American story. 
And then they forget God, they go worship false gods, God takes them to the woodshed and gives them a spanking. Now, how do you do that to a whole nation? By bringing another nation in to oppress them. I love the book of Judges because it has the most outrageous stories in all the Bible. It's crazy. And they go through this cycle. They're right with God. Life's peaceful. It's great. They forget God. Our nation has forgotten God. For 50 years, people have been shoving God out of the schools, out of everything, right? So we're really growing up in a biblically illiterate society, which has not existed in America up to this point. And so we've pushed God out. We've sown the wind. Now we're reaping the whirlwind, and that's what's going on. And so we want to look at a passage here from Judges chapter 4 and chapter 5, a real big picture, if you will, of a time where God brought correction. And I'm praying that for us, the same kind of correction comes to our generation. Because you see, every generation needs its own spiritual revival. And even as a nation, we need our revival towards liberty as a people to maintain our republic. Hey, if you have that Bible and you found your way to Judges chapter 4, read along. We're going to read verses 1 through 10. Go ahead and stand with me for the reading of God's Word. Verse 1, it says, When Ehud was dead, the children of Israel again did evil in the sight of the Lord. So the Lord sold them into the hand of Jabin, king of Canaan, who reigned in Hazor. The commander of his army was Sisera, who dwelt in Harasheth and Hogim. And the children of Israel cried out to the Lord, for Jabin had 900 chariots of iron, and for 20 years he had harshly oppressed the children of Israel. Now Deborah, a prophetess, the wife of Lapidoth, was judging Israel at the time, and she would sit under the palm tree of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the mountains of Ephraim. And the children of Israel came up to her for judgment. Then she sent and called for Barak, the son of Abinoam from Kadesh in Naphtali, and said to him, Has not the Lord God of Israel commanded, Go and deploy troops at Mount Tabor? Take with you 10,000 men of the tribes of Naphtali and the sons of Zebulun. And against you I will deploy Sisera, the commander of Jabin's army, with his chariots and his multitude at the river Kishon, and I will deliver him into your hand. And Barak said to her, If you will go with me, then I will go. But if you will not come go with me, I will not go. So they said, I will surely, so she said, I will surely go with you. Nevertheless, there will be no glory for you in the journey you are taking. For the Lord will sell Sisera into the hand of a woman. Then Deborah arose and went with Barak to Kadesh. And Barak called Zebulun and Naphtali to Kadesh. He went up with 10,000 men under his command, and Deborah went up with him. Now, verses 11 through 16 say that they won the battle. Now check this out, because one guy escapes, Sisera, the general of the army. Verse 17, however, Sisera had fled away on foot to the tent of Jael, the wife of Heber, the Kenite. For there was peace between Jabin, king of Hazor, and the house of Heber the Kenite. And Jael went out to meet Sisera and said to him, Turn aside, my lord, turn aside to me, do not fear. And when he 
had turned aside with her into the tent, she covered him with a blanket. Then he said to her, please give me a little drink of water, uh, water to drink, for I am thirsty. So she opened a jug of milk, gave him a drink, and covered him. And he said to her, stand at the door at the tent. And if any man comes and inquires of you and says, is there any man here, you shall say, no. Then Jael, Heber's wife, took a tent peg and took a hammer in her hand and went softly to him and drove the peg into his temple. And it went down into the ground, for he was fast asleep and weary. So he died. And then as Barak pursued Sisera, Jael came out to meet him and said, Come, I will show you the man whom you seek. And when he went into the tent, there lay Sisera, dead with a peg in his temple. So on that day, God subdued Jabin, king of Canaan, in the presence of the children of Israel. And the hand of the children of Israel grew stronger and stronger against Jabin, king of Canaan, until they had destroyed Jabin, king of Canaan. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Pray that you would open our hearts and our minds and our eyes to see wonderful things that will apply to our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Here's a crazy story, isn't it, you guys? I mean, nutso. Here's a story, and the, the cool thing to me is when a whole nation, you guys, nobody's standing up, men are not standing up to really have a backbone as leaders in the nation, who's God call? The ladies rock, right? <laughs> Deborah, a, she's a judge in Israel. God speaks to her, but she wants to get, deliver the message to Barak, who is a general or at least a military potential leader in Israel. And so she says, hey, you know what? If you do this, get these 10,000 guys from Naphtali and Zebulun. You're going to go to Mount Tabor, and God's just going to give you Jabin's army. And Sisera, you're going to conquer him, even though he has 900 chariots. Iron chariots were the war machine, the tanks, the Sherman tanks of their day. And and they were brutal. And, And no standing infantry or even cavalry could stand against these kind of chariots. So they they had no shot whatsoever of winning unless God supernaturally intervened. And that's what he did. He said, if you'll step out in faith and you'll do what I ask you to do, God sent a big rainstorm and the rain came down and made all the ground. You know, chariots in bogged down mud are useless. So they were all stuck, and they all just were killed by the Israelites because now they're stuck with their horses. They can't go anywhere because they're sinking in mud. And so God delivered them. Sisera has to get out of his chariot and run for his life, the general, and he comes into the camp of Jael. Now, when you think of Jael, first of all, that's a beautiful name, isn't it? It doesn't sound very dainty, Jael. But the way she acts, she's more like Helga. <laughs> right? I think, I think I met Helga at the gym this week. Helga, she's bench pressing more than me. She has a little hair growing on her chin, and she's got guns like this. You know, it's, hello, I'm Helga. Now, Helga, in the Bedouin tradition, it says that she took a mallet or a hammer and a tent stake. Even to this day, you guys, this is not even though our story is from thousands of years ago, even to this day, if you go to modern-day Israel, you can see Bedouins. And Bedouins, if you come up to their camp, if they, depending on how many tents they have, that's how many uh, wives the, the husband has. So if you see a Bedouin camp and it has five tents, that means he has four wives, each wife has a tent, and then they have the common tent. And 
the women, and these are significant tents. I mean, it's not the two-man pup tent that you just go into Walmart and buy for 15 bucks. And with the little, little wire stake or the uh, little plastic ones that if the ground's too hard, they just break. It's not like that. Their, their tents are significant, so their stakes are bodacious wood stakes that are 16 to 18 inches big. They're monsters. And the girls have to take down the tents and put up the tents. I mean, they can bring it. So when she picks up, she brings them in. She lulls them to sleep. She's wanting to help the children of Israel. Just like Deborah, Deborah told Barak, hey, if you go, you're going to win. And he would have received glory for the battle. But because he was a scaredy cat, he's like, I'll go if you go. Come hold my hand. What is it with a, a whole spineless generation, no men, but the ladies step up. I mean, Deborah's the hero of this story, and so is J.L. And so when she gets him in there, and he's thirsty, he's been running, he's dehydrated from the battle, and she gives him some warm milk and tucks him in, and you're going to be fine, and then he goes to sleep. I mean, this girl's got some brass, doesn't she? Can you imagine? She takes this big 16-inch, big wooden stake, and a mallet, one drive. Boom! All the way through his head, pins him to the ground. Pretty gross, right? Now, I framed when I was in high school with my stepdad because he was a framer. And you know, that's the thing, right? You, you tap a 16 and then you, with, you, try to, you drive it with one. And if you're, you're good, you can do it. And we had these 32-ounce rigging axes. I mean, it's crazy, the, the kind of force. But anyway, she does that. And at least we know the last thing that went through his mind, right? <laughs> I'm sorry. It's like a Sunday school joke. A big piece of wood went through his mind was the very last thing. Now, that being said, the whole point of our time together here is not to send you to Home Depot to get your wood and start whittling down the stake, ladies, and and, and get your hammer. No, there's a point to this whole madness, and it's about leadership, you guys. Deborah was a leader. Barak was a reluctant leader. JL was a leader. She stepped up. In a time of crisis, the people that respond for the cry for help, I don't know if you've ever been in a dangerous situation. I've been in a number in my life. And one day I was in this, I used to uh, uh, sandblast granite monuments for headstones. So I was a monument designer and builder. And I did that for three years. And so I was in my sandblasting unit, and I had my headphones on uh, to because the compressors and everything so loud, and I hear this big crash right outside my door, and this yelling and screaming and commotion, so I turn off my compressor, and I run outside, and, and my friend, uh, who a kid I went to high school with, and then we were working together, a brother in the Lord, his name's Jim, he's a big, tall, drink of water, like 6'4", six, 6'5", six, and he had started the tractor standing next to it, and the tractor lurched, and just, the big wheel just rolled right up on him. And so he grabbed, fortunately, the, as just a reaction, the handle that pushes the bucket into the ground. So it stopped. Otherwise, it would have ran right over the top of him. And the wheels were just, it was in gear. So it was just spinning. It was just ripping his pants right off his body. And I ran out there, and I jumped on the tractor, and I had to force his body off of this lever to back it up off of him. And he's like, oh, I'm, I'm good. I'm, I'm going to be fine. You don't have tractors grow, you know, run up on you. I'm like, your leg's broke or your foot's broke or something's crushed. And it, and it was. And so we took him to the hospital. But, you know, it's not a time that you could look out there and say, you know, I, I think I'll get this after lunchtime. 
You know, I think I'll, I'll come and respond to this later. You know, a cry for help will really motivate you. And can I just share with you from a grassroots level across America, people are crying for help and leadership because they're just wondering if anybody will take a stand no matter what it'll cost. And that's what's on the line. We're, we're really at a time in our, a crisis in our nation like we've never seen before in this need for leadership. And so I laid that backdrop because chapter 5 is really the thing. I just want to mention some things about leadership because it's the only duet in the whole Bible, a man and a woman sing a song. Check it out. Chapter 5, Deborah and Barak, they sing a duet. They not only fight together, they can sing together. It says, Then Deborah and Barak, the son of Abinoam, sang on that day, saying, When leaders lead in Israel, when the people willingly offer themselves, bless the Lord. Praise the Lord. She said, when leaders lead in Israel, when the people offer themselves. You know, when I came here, you guys, and I see how your pastor has been leading the way. Really in this fight for liberty and how you guys willingly have joined with him. When I was in here in February, there was probably about 350 people on a Sunday morning. Maybe 400. And now there's 1,200 to 1,500. It's what you call leadership because people saw a leader that was willing to lead and people willingly offered themselves to be a part of this. You guys are praying. You guys are giving. You guys are a part of things. And many of you are coming from other fellowships where those churches are not open. Those leaders are not leading. And not to, you know, that's between them and the Lord and, and their leadership teams. But what I want to share with you is that Deborah wants to sing a song and she wants to celebrate how leadership works, right? Everything rises or falls on leadership. It doesn't matter what it is, whether it's a, a football team or a church or a company, CEO, whatever it might be. Because, you know, the Lord tells us, even for us, in the church, in Romans 12, verses 6 and 7, it says, having then gifts differing according to the grace that is given to us, let us use them, he who leads with diligence. If you're called into a leadership position, this is a time to voice what things are, what's really going on. Not only as in this dual citizenship of our relationship with Jesus and our relationship as U.S. citizens. Paul the Apostle was a Roman citizen, and he was a citizen of heaven and a Roman citizen, and he strategically used that citizenship at the right time. But you and I have a greater privilege than Paul did in his Roman citizenship, and that is we get to elect through a representation as a republic. That's why it's so important for us to guard, safeguard the, the election fraud to get that to um, a correct counting system nationwide because once you lose the power of the people to, add, to legally vote, all bets are off, right? All bets are off. So here on uh, Monday through Friday, because everybody's doing what they can, right? Some of you are praying, some of you are coming, some of you are giving, some of you are speaking out on social media. There's a group, just five to ten people that meet at 7 p.m. Monday through Friday here at the church in the sanctuary just to pray for this process to get to the bottom of the election business. And, and there are a handful of people that couldn't go, you know, if you, you went to Washington, D.C., you couldn't accomplish anything. But did you know that we can reach heaven through faith in Jesus Christ and through prayer 
And so these people are just praying. They're just praying for it to come out. Even if it turned out that President Trump lost. The real, I mean, the real issue is election integrity. And so that's a way to be involved in that process. There are those who are involved in their uh, school boards and, and, and all of these different things. But Deborah says and Barak sing, when leaders lead in Israel, when the people willingly offer themselves, you know, nobody can crack a whip and make you willingly be a part of things. I mean, I guess they can hold a gun to your head, but you do it from resentment. But if you do it from your own volition, there's tremendous power in that. You willingly offer yourselves. She wants to explain, Deborah wants to just paint a little picture. And let me just ask you if it sounds reminiscent of our own culture right now. She paints a picture of what it was like in the days of Jael. Check it out, verse 6. It says, In the days of Jael, the highways were deserted, the travelers walked along the byways, village life ceased, it ceased in Israel. It's so weird to travel a country and go into an airport that's usually just packed, and it's like a ghost town. It's so weird to go into grocery stores and see bare shelves for the first time in our life, in my whole life, to see bare shelves. It's crazy that people are afraid to be out after dark in a city like Portland because of the anarchy in the streets, or in New York because of the anarchy in the streets. People are not going out with their families, right, because it's, it's a scary thing. If this is not from anarchy, then it can be from government oppression, as we are now in lockdowns, seeing things like, where's the people, Right? On the streets because of curfews and, and various things. Isn't it strange that how history repeats itself? We were in Hawaii right before the lockdown, and our friends barely got out of Hawaii. They would have been locked down if they, they'd left like three days after us. And it, it would just been shut down. All for a virus, all for a virus that for 99% of people is not going to be a serious issue. So 99% of Americans and the population in the world have to stand doors, have no business, not send your kids to school. There's something wrong, and if it's not a political issue where the government has now found this mechanism to flex their muscles and to control the people, and like the sharks with blood in the water, once they get a taste for that kind of power, the people have to take it back. So, She goes on to say, village life in verse 7, village life ceased, and it ceased in Israel until when? Until pizza cookery opened back up. (laughs) Right? Until Conejo coffee opened back up. Until God God speak church opened back up. Right? It says, until I, Deborah, arose, arose a mother in Israel. Who changed the tide of Israel? A mom, a mom, a mother in Israel spoke up and changed the tide by giving the message to Barak and seeing what God was going to do. And her inspiration inspired Barak, and Barak inspired 10,000 soldiers, and they all inspired Jael in a tent to take care of some serious business with the visitor that she had coming. In verse 8, it says, They chose new gods, then there was war in the gates. Not a shield or a spear was seen among 40,000 in Israel. Israel, their streets had come to a dead stop in their business and their commerce because of fear of oppression 
oppression of a harsh, oppressive government, and they're just, it was like a desert in the streets. And it says that the Israelis, among 40,000, there was not a spear, meaning they had been disarmed. After our First Amendment goes, right, to gather, what's going to go next? Our Second Amendment, the right to bear arms. Because our forefathers, whose legacy was coming from Europe, realized the, the people in Europe could be controlled because they took away their arms. So our right to bear arms. You see, guys, this is a story thousands of years old. And the streets are deserted and the people are unarmed. And they're a helpless people until they cry out to God. And they pray and ask for God to have deliverance. (laughs) I love verse 12. She says what happened to her. You know, there's a big movement right now, the woke movement. Right? (laughs) Look at her woke moment. It says in verse 12, awake, awake, Deborah, awake, awake, sing a song, arise, Barak, Barak, and lead your captives away, O son of Abinoam. Wake up, Deborah, wake up, arise, Barak. And that's what's happening to our generation. I don't know if you're like me. I'm 55 years old. My first opportunity to vote was for President Reagan. And... Um, I grew up in the 80s, the 70s and the 80s, and we had this incredible boom of uh, freedom and liberty and, and this leadership that was, you know, so stellar. And what happens is you just take it all for granted, like it's always going to be there. Like that's what it's going to be. There was a time that California, when President, I mean, uh, when Governor Reagan was here, this was a red state. How did they turn into a blue state? Because leaders did not arise and wake up to what was going on. Like I said, while we're ushering our kids around, because we're decent citizens, we're not looking for a fight, right? We're just peaceful people. I mean, who's looking for a fight? Who wants to, who wants to do any of that stuff? We just want to live peaceful lives and raise our family and go to work, right? Buy groceries. We're very peaceful. But there are a group of people that are very militant to push their agenda. And hopefully you will awake, awake to that agenda, and realize that unless we step up in a peaceful way through elections, fair elections, and good candidates, and the change of policies. That's how America works. And those powers are in our hands at this time. But it is our stewardship. I'm not responsible for the previous generation, and I'm not responsible for a future generation. I'm responsible for my generation. And so are you. You're responsible. What kind of country is our children and our grandchildren and our great-grandchildren going to have unless we get some guts and stand up and be the citizens that God has called us to be? She now wants to mention in her song, she wants to call people out that stepped up to the battle, and then she wants to call people out that did nothing. I love Deborah. She's a straight talker, and in this case, a straight singer. She's telling you about it. It says these are the people that stood up to uh, really stand for what was right. It says in verse 13, then the survivors came down, the people against the nobles, people that had survived this harsh, tyrannical oppression. They came to the fight. The Lord came down for me against the mighty. You know what? When we throw our hat in the ring by faith with the Lord, the Lord is there to help and assist. From Ephraim were those whose roots were in Amalek, 
After you, Benjamin, with your peoples, from Machir, rulers came down, and from Zebulun, those who bear the recruiter's staff. And the princes of Issachar were with Deborah, as Issachar, so was Barak, sent into the valley under his command. Drop down, look at verse 18. It says, Zebulun is a people who jeopardize their lives to the point of death. Naphtali also on the heights of the battlefield. Talk about real heroism. I mean, heroic antics by people in this time. And she wants to honor them in this song. No doubt this was a top 40 hit, national bestseller in Israel during this time. I mean, everybody's singing it. It's got a snappy little Israeli tune, whatever that is. Don't know what it is. But they want to honor them. But they also want to call out people that just did nothing. I don't want to be in that paragraph or that chorus or that verse of the song. It says in the middle of verse 15, among the divisions of Reuben, there were great resolves of heart. Why did you sit among the sheepfolds to hear the pipings for the flocks? The divisions of Reuben have great searchings of heart. Gilead stayed beyond the Jordan, and why did Dan remain on ships? Asher continued at the seashore and stayed by his inlets. All these people are called out for not stepping up at a crucial time in their nation's history. It says Reuben has great resolves of heart, great searchings of heart. He sits at home. He ponders these things and listens to his nice music and sips his tea and does nothing. He does nothing. But he's really thinking about it. He's one of those astute people. I've met a lot of them. They're like this armchair person that has all these opinions and does absolutely nothing. I always ask him, what are you practically you doing? There's never anything. They just have this philosophy. I'm like, well, you know, that's a great musing of heart. You know, you're thinking it through. Doing nothing. It also tells us that Gideon stayed beyond the Jordan. They didn't want to cross the river. Maybe they thought it wouldn't come to their side. Dan was in the ships. They're out sailing, you know. Got their cool sailor shoes on, feeling a bit preppy. On the deck of their, they're sailing around the marina. Well, the country's being destroyed. Asher continued at the seashore. They're on the beach drinking, you know, Mai Tais with fun little umbrellas in their drink. This is great. Isn't oppression wonderful? We love this country where we can sit by the beach and do nothing. And so she totally calls them out, and she says what their circumstances are. Now, if you were on the receiving end of that, you would know if you're the person, right? (laughs) You're the person that just sits at home and thinks about these things and listens to your music but doesn't do anything. Or the person that's more worried about sailing or a trip to the beach and seeing the freedom of the nation and handing off a country. I, I have to tell you, it breaks my heart to think of the nation that my granddaughter, Galilee Grace, is going to grow up in. It's not the nation that I grew up in. Unless we can turn the tide. You know, tomorrow is December 7th, well-known day in American history that has went down in infamy. December 7th, 1941, the Japanese bombed Pearl Harbor. But the admiral of the Japanese fleet is recorded to have said, I believe we have awakened a sleeping giant. Right? And once 
we, we were trying to stay neutral. We were trying to stay out of, right, the war in the South Pacific and, and with um, Germany. Just like we tried to stay out of the first one, you know, where, where uh, people call us isolationists. No, we're just minding our own business. But if you come bomb our naval base at Pearl Harbor, we are going to come to the fight. We are going to show up. And we are going to show up with a heart of unity in the cause to defend our nation. And I'm really wondering on this, in this season of our life, if this year, if this season for all of us won't awaken a sleeping giant in America, the peaceful citizens of America who are, what have we been called for 50 years? The silent majority. Right? We don't make a big deal, stink at work. We do, not that you need to. Don't, don't get me wrong. I'm not, I'm not saying go out and like get in arguments with everybody. I'm not saying any of that. I'm simply saying that unless we exercise prayer for our nation and leaders, we exercise our vote, get informed about the candidates, get somebody in office that has a biblical worldview so that they can implement policies that are close to God's heart. Even though people tell me all the time, I hate politics, it's dirty, it's messy. I know that. And, well, you know, I don't like the candidates, and, and I'm always, I, I don't want to vote for the lesser of two evils. It's like, as Pastor Rob said, unless Jesus is running for office, you're always voting for the lesser of two evils. Right? Unless Jesus, Jesus what you want is heaven, you guys. But until then, we have a stewardship to take care of that we need to be salt and light. And we are praying that Jesus comes again. Amen. I can't wait for Jesus to come again. The promise of his return would fix everything. We could, we could leave uh, everybody here that wants nothing to do with God. They can have, him. They can have what's left over, right? So it, it's with this thrill in our heart that Jesus is our hope. And the White House and the president is not our hope. But we each have responsibilities as citizens of heaven and citizens with a privilege that few have had. I was in Israel for 22 days by myself, and when I came back in the United States, I have been in India, I have been in uh, a leper colony with, you know, 30 people with leprosy in uh, India. I have been on islands where people are ostracized on these islands in Lake Victoria where we're handing out medicine for AIDS. I have been um, in Europe, and all, I've been around the world, and there is no place in America like America in the world, not one. And after being in Israel 22 days, I came into the States, and there was this big buff guy, looked like he you know, was from the Marine Corps, about 2.30, and he, I mean, he was jacked, and he was security, had his hands behind his back, and he's standing like this to welcome all the people that are coming into, a, into Atlanta. And I'm coming in, and, and he said, welcome home. I almost cried and kissed the man. I know I would have been taken down, but, you know, in that moment, having been overseas, because you see, in order to get to Israel, I went into Cairo, Egypt, and went through some real craziness where Saddam Hussein had just put out a hit on all Westerners. The few days after I went through Cairo, they executed an American or a Westerner, put him on his knees and shot him in the head, and they were bombing Israel with Scud missiles every day. They were handing out 100,000 gas masks a day in Israel when I was there visiting. And this was in 1998. You can go to all of these things, and you see post-Russian Europe, the eastern block of Europe, and you hang out with those people, and they have been so inundated with the control of the government that their mindset is just 
it has no center in liberty. They do what they're told. You grow up doing what you're told. And I know that today there's this big rewrite on history that America is the most awful, racist, terrible country. There is no nation on the face of the earth with the kind of acceptance and liberty as the United States of America. Not one. Because those are from Europe, you know what I mean. If you're French, you could, you could be a fifth-generation person that moved from somewhere else to France, and if you have another national identity, you're never going to be French. That's not true in America, right? You come here, you go through citizenship, it doesn't matter what color you are, what race you are, it doesn't matter what economic background you come from, it is the melting pot of humanity. And you and I and our generation on our watch, on our watch, is handing away the greatest nation of liberty unless we exercise what God has given to us to be able to do. And that is to have the freedom and the liberty to have life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness that our forefathers have given us. These incredible unalienable rights that God our creator gave to us before them that we have them. I love what Deborah, as she ends here, in verse 31 of this chapter, and it says, Let's let all your enemies perish, O Lord, but let those who love him be like the sun when it comes out in full strength so the land had rest for 40 years. If we come through 2020 and it becomes this incredible pushback in elections, voting, putting the right people in office, us Christians rising up and being a part of that process to be salt and light. We're to be salt and light in every culture that we go. In this process, it says they had rest for 40 years. And all the way through the book of Judges, they'll have rest 20 years, they'll have rest 40 years. Wouldn't it be great to give rest to our children and our grandchildren for 40 years? And then they're going to have to fight the battle all over again, right? It's cyclic. Just like every generation needs, needs a revival spiritually, we also need a revolution in liberty on a consistent basis. On this communion Sunday, there is no greater revolutionary than our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, who came and was against all odds for liberty, to give us freedom from two things, from the power of sin and the power of death. Jesus, when he died on the cross for our sins, is the perfect substitute and sacrifice. All of my sins, all of your sins, all the sins of the entire world, all the shame of it was all poured out on him in judgment on the cross. He withstood the Sanhedrin. He withstood the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the high priest and uh, everybody in between. He said, this is what I've come to do, my father's business, and it was all about if the sun sets you free, you're going to be free indeed. But whoever sins is a slave to sin, and that goes for a nation too, that righteousness exalts the nation and sin is a reproach to any people. And yet Jesus came to be that great liberator for you and I, and I don't know about you, but when Jesus found me half drunk after a couple of drug deals and trouble with the law as a 19-year-old kid, I was terrified of dying. When I would wake up and realize that I had driven home the night before and I couldn't remember a thing, I thought, wow, what if I would have wrapped my truck around a telephone pole last night and died? It was like this inside your soul, like, dum-dum-dum. Where would you have went? Straight to hell. That's startling when you're 19. 
I was terrified of death. And you go, I'm not afraid of death. Really? We'll have this conversation after you talk with the doctor. And the doctor tells you, you got a month to live. You see, it might not be in your face right now. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not, I, I'm not afraid to die any longer. I'm forgiven of my sins, and I'm not afraid to die, to be absent from the bodies, to be present with the Lord. The time that I breathe my last, I'm going to step into eternity in heaven. I'm not really stoked about the process getting there. Okay, just to be honest. You know, it's a piece by piece, part by part, you know, all drug out. What is, you know, I don't think any of us are excited about that, right, that journey. But we're not afraid. As I looked at my mom said, hey, it's a win-win for me, honey. Either the doctors heal me up from this stage four cancer or I go home to be with Jesus. I love life, so if I get healed up, I love life. And if not, I'm going home to be with Jesus. And I said along the same side, my mom's mom, by her bed, I was a new Christian, and I asked my grandmother, I said, Grandma, you really do know Jesus, right? And she smiled at me and told me about her giving her life to Jesus when she was a 14-year-old kid in Missouri. Uh, but if you're from there, you say Missouri. In Missouri, uh, in a tent meeting, you know, sawdust tent meeting, and giving her life to Jesus. And she quoted to me the 23rd Psalm, her favorite passage. And she told my grandfather, I want to go home. And he thought she meant physically home. And she's, no, I want to go home and be with Jesus. She was ready. She was filled with cancer. They did exploratory surgery. They opened her up. They just closed her back up, and, and a couple of weeks later, she was gone. You see, Jesus told you and I that though you die when you believe in him, yet you shall live. You're going to live forever, you guys. So what can you do to a group of people that have been set free from the bondage and penalties of sin and from the fear of death? It's a hard animal to, to corral once you're filled with a heart for liberty. What are you going to do to me? Kill me? Send me to heaven? I mean, is that the worst you got? And yet Jesus said, when you do this, do it in remembrance of me. Communion. He gave us something physical, something tangible to do with the cups that you have. And if you're new to our fellowship, if you open that top lid, the worship team is going to come up now. And as they're worshiping, you guys are going to partake of communion. And just thank the Lord for his body that was broken for you and his blood that was given for you. But these uh, cups could be a little bit tricky. You take off the top label, which has the bread. And it's a, it's a bit styrofoamy. Just so you know. But it's bread. Okay, just, just so you know. It's, not, it's bread. All right. And it's a cup. And so we're remembering that Jesus gave his body for us. And we're remembering that he shed his blood for us. That he paid an incredible price with his very life for you and I to have the liberty that we have in our relationship with God. And so um, I just want to encourage you. As you continue to pray, as you continue to be involved, you guys are an amazing congregation that has that, uh, the blessing of being a part of something so special in this time of our, our country. And so we're just going to worship. Mike and the team's going to lead us. And then just partake and remember the Lord in communion. And Mike will be dismissing you in a moment. God bless you.